In the middle of a Monday afternoon, Mark should be at his internship, which he has to complete unless he wants to drop out of yet another high school. Mark definitely should not be on the phone calling Paul. Did you hear, Mark says, AT&T crashed. What did you say? AT&T crashed. It's on the news. Paul's scared. Are they saying hackers did it? Did he do it? Could he have done it? He doesn't think so, doesn't want to believe it, has never in his life wanted to believe anything less. But the fact remains, the fact remains that the other night Paul was sitting at the computer in the basement of his family's house in Cambria Heights. The computer clandestinely hooked up through the phone line to a sensitive portion of AT&T's system. He was the quiet programming genius behind the hacker gang known as the Masters of Deception. No self-respecting computer hacker would ever purposely hurt the phone system. Paul just wanted to look around. He'd know if he'd done something bad, wouldn't he? Facts, opinions, controversies, policies, current events, the arts. How they affect you, your family, your friends, or your business depends on your point of view. Now, it's time for Point of View, a weekly forum for insight and information of importance to Chicago area residents. Produced by the News and Public Affairs Department of WNUA 95.5, Chicago. Good morning, I'm Charlie Meyerson. Today we bring you strange adventures from the electronic frontier and the price paid by some of the kids who broke the law getting there. Our guests are Michelle Slatala and Joshua Quitner, reporters. Mr. Quitner for Time, as well as Wired Magazines, Ms. Slatala for Newsday. Their new book is Masters of Deception, the gang that ruled cyberspace. Welcome to Chicago, welcome to Point of View. Tell our audience who the Masters of Deception are. Imagine a group of poor kids who live on the outskirts of Manhattan in boroughs like Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Queens. They don't have very much money, they're really smart, and they're really fascinated by computers. So what they do is they cobble together their own systems. They buy cheap components from Radio Shack. They put together their, one of them scavenges a TV set to make a computer monitor from a junkyard. And they manage to put together computers that they can hook up to the most sensitive and powerful computer systems in the world. How did you get involved in this story? I had originally uh, been working for Newsday as a reporter covering um, information technology. And one of the first stories I did was a story about computer hackers. And I found that all the hackers in the metropolitan area would meet on the first Friday of every month in the atrium of a big building in midtown Manhattan called the City Corp building. And there from about 6 p.m. until around 8.30 when they all got sick of it and went downtown for, for noodle soup, they would discuss the finer points of computer hacking swapping uh, passwords, swapping printouts, swapping technical manuals. And this is public knowledge? Sure, it's legal. Freedom, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. Well, your book mentions that in, in at least some of these occasions, some of these, some of these kids, some of these hackers are, are making free calls on pay phones? Yeah, I mean, actually... It, it, public knowledge? I mean, was that widely known? And in fact, the Secret Service would attend these meetings hiding behind potted plants and sometimes taking surveillance photos of these teenagers wearing these big, thick, muffled jackets and clumpy shoes and, and walking around looking really alienated and using the payphones. This is Point of View on WNUA 95.5. I'm Charlie Meyerson talking to reporters Michelle Slatala and Joshua Quitner, husband and wife team who've just published Masters of Deception, the gang that ruled cyberspace. 
we get two conflicting pictures, at least two conflicting pictures of, of uh, this group, these masters of deception from you. Uh, harmless kids as pranksters uh, on the one hand in some chapters, and in others, potentially dangerous electronic vandals who threaten the integrity of the nation's communication system. Which do you think it is? Do you, do you have, a, do you have a, uh, an opinion on this? Well, these kids crossed the line. They started out um, just exploring the wondrous computer systems that they got access to, mainly telephone company computers, giant computers that control all of our service, wandering around in there as if they were explorers in a cave. But then the power went to their heads. Yeah, and also I would add to that that um, when, when we talk about a group of people, we have people who are doing different levels of things. And clearly there were people in this group who are not interested in making money, who are not interested in the power aspects of hacking into these super sensitive computer systems. But because they threw their lot in with a group, they got dragged down into the mire along with the rest of the group. A kind of group mind took over. And what the Masters of Deception wanted to do was to go farther than they'd ever gone before, explore new systems. One member, John Lee, uh, talked about how the first thing they would do when they would break into a new computer system was to go on a reconnaissance mission, look around, see what company owned the computer, see if it contained really sensitive information, look at all the files. And then they would set up shop. They would create an electronic meeting place for themselves and their friends so that they could buzz in there like flies onto what they called a parasite bulletin board system and hang out and chat with each other on somebody else's computer. This wasn't Matthew Broderick and War Games here. This Although there are references to that in your book. Oh yeah, every hacker, every hacker ever has seen that movie and was inspired by that movie. But these kids were not rich white kids from affluent Chicago suburbs. These were kids who came from working class families, typically families where there was no father and there was no guidance. Um, when a, you put a kid like that in front of a computer and the kid takes off on that computer and he starts finding that, sure enough, he's going to get into the Bank of America and he's going to get into um, the CIA's computer system, he's going to think of ways to make money off of what he learned. I think we should refresh our audience's memory. The, the movie War Games, Matthew Broderick uses a computer. I'm going to let you take it from here. This, this is a standard, a standard tool of the hacker and something that you, you document in some detail in your book. Tell us what it is, and, and then the next question I have for you is, did you go through any, any moral um, wrestling on your part as to whether, you know, how much detail to give on how these kids do what they do? First of all, the war games Look, I'll, I'll address the first question, and then maybe Michelle could address okay. the second Thank one. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the movie was about a, a kid who, uh, who used his, uh, I think it was an Apple computer, um, to, uh, to hack into various computer systems. Um, he would use a program that would randomly dial computers all across the country, and then he would randomly try different passwords to break in. This is what hackers do. And the, and the beauty of cyberspace is that you don't need a sophisticated computer. You don't need a powerful computer. You don't need an expensive computer to hack. All you need is the, the lowest kind of a computer. You don't even need a hard drive. You need a modem, and the modem can be operating at, at 300 baud. It doesn't need to be... Which is a snail's pace by today's modem yeah, most Yeah, the, the, the standard today is around 9,600, although most people are now buying 14,000 uh, bit per second computer uh, modems. And a phone line, that's all you need. Um, and you can work your magic in, in that way. And the, the other interesting thing is, 
these kids can dial 800 numbers at random looking for a computer, and it doesn't cost them anything. It doesn't show up right. on the phone bill Right. You can dial any number. That's yeah. right. But they would they would just try randomly dialing 800 numbers. 800-222-1234. Please don't try these. Please don't dial Whatever. But, I mean, they would do it in sequence. And at what point did you did you stop say, okay, we can't really go into detail about how they did this because we're just asking for trouble if we put it in the book? Well, we believed that we would be doing a service by demystifying what they did. Out out there in our society, we have a great fear of hackers. We think of some great unknown hacker menace that's threatening all of us and all of our privacy. But we don't really know what that means. And what our book shows is that basically there were a bunch of skinny teenagers sitting alone in their bedrooms in front of computer monitors typing a few letters or numbers on their keyboards. And by showing exactly what they typed and what that gave them access to and what they did after they got into the computers, we felt that we would, for the first time, give a really inside look at how teenage computer hackers operate. Did anyone come to you at any point in this book, in the writing of this book, uh, officials of the phone company or your editors or anyone say, please don't put this in. You're just going to make trouble for us. Did yes, actually once Michelle and I were picked up by this dark limousine and we were taken to an underground bunker in Washington, <laughs> D.C. and tortured nonstop for 48 hours. <laughs> no, nobody said anything like okay. that. I mean, because because it would have only, uh, I guess, attracted attention to, to what we were doing. And, and, and I don't believe that anyone thinks that what we did was pose any kind of a security threat. We were responsible in the way we went around about it. We didn't use real phone numbers. All the computers that were hacked into were supposedly safe. The companies came to us and told us when we were working on the book that all the holes in their systems had been patched and that hackers couldn't get in anymore. Notably, New York Telephone assured us that they had been able to fix all the problems. Well, we found out firsthand last Thanksgiving that that wasn't entirely <laughs> true. We this got is, hacked. Hang on to that story while I tell our listeners that this is Point of View on WNUA 95.5. Our guests are Joshua Quitner and Michelle Slatala, authors of the book Masters of Deception, The Gang That Ruled Cyberspace. Okay, it, it, was, it was in the papers, it was on the radio, it was on the wires, but tell our audience the story. What happened to you Thanksgiving weekend? We came back from... Uh, from visiting my, my folks out of state, and uh, it was a Saturday, and the phone didn't ring all day Saturday and all day Sunday, which normally would be unusual, but we didn't notice because one of our kids had just come down with chicken pox. Sunday night, Michelle calls her voicemail at Newsday, and I'm watching her as her face goes dead white. The color drains from it, like, like juice from a snow cone. Lovely image. Thank you. And I say, <laughs> what is it? Who died? What's the matter? And she says, I think we were hacked. It turns out that what had happened was these kids had um, had f installed a feature on our telephone known as remote call forwarding. The telephone company still doesn't know whether they did it through hacking the computer switch that runs our phone service or by social engineering it, which is calling up the phone company and pretending to be an employee and babbling on an arcane technical language, convincing them that you are in fact an employee and having the feature installed. In any event, all of our phone calls were circumvented from our house to an out-of-state mailbox, voice mailbox, where any caller would hear a male voice say, hi, this is Josh Quitner, and then spout a string of obscenities, and then, and then the person said, please leave a message. Now, the truly disturbing thing about this was how many of our really close friends left messages. Your <laughs> mother left a message. That's right. My mother left the message. And also our tenant, our new tenant had left a message about electricity in the house not working properly. 
She also left her phone number on the voice answering machine, and the hackers called her back and harassed her, pretending to be Josh. They said, oh, I'm sorry, the electricity doesn't work. Maybe you have ghosts in the house. And then hung up on her. And at that point, she had called my voicemail at Newsday and left this really outraged message. She didn't know us very well, and the message said, I don't know if the two of you have a really unusual sense of humor. I don't know if Josh gets really drunk all the time, (laughs) but I don't think it's funny that when I tell you there's a problem with the electricity, you call up and harass me. So what does New York Telephone say about this? The, the, the system is, is hack-proof, and this happens to you. So they gave us unlisted phone, an unlisted phone number, oh. which we were morally opposed to as reporters. You know, we like our number to be listed. We want people to reach us because sometimes the best stories you get don't happen during business hours. Well, and, and do they explain how this happened? Have they well, taken steps? So they that? gave us a, an unlisted phone number on a Friday. By Monday, the hackers were calling us on that number. <laughs> well, what do they have to say about this? Do they're, they have... they're investigating. They're trying right. to trap and trace the origins of all the calls. But it's very difficult because the calls are coming in from out of state, which means they're coming in over long-distance carriers, either MCI, AT&T, Sprint, or someone else. So New York Telephone has to go to that other carrier and say, Where did this call come from that hooked up to our system? Where did it originate? And the hackers can loop through many different carriers all around the country. At one point in the book, you refer to one of the the masters of deception standing around worrying about a cramp in his foot. As a reader, I I sometimes find this sort of detail hard to swallow in a nonfiction book. And And I wonder how you'd know that there was a cramp in this person's foot at that point, and how even if it were true, the person in question would remember that he had a cramp in his foot on that day five years ago. How do you go about balancing a reader's craving for, for this sort of fiction-style detail against you know, your limited ability, journalist's limited ability, to reconstruct the past? First of all, was there really a cramp that day, that minute, <laughs> in that person's foot? We're really good reporters. <laughs> <laughs> we have pictures of the cramp. <laughs> that was fiber optic, and he was describing... Um, what happened to him the day that the Secret Service raided him. He was a teenager. He was walking home from the subway in January of 1990. It was cold out, and everything was normal at that point in his life. He was walking past the stores in his neighborhood that he always went past. He was having a cigarette. He was saying hello to people. And then as he rounded the corner, all of a sudden he saw strange activity going on at his house. There were people coming and going from his house, the neighbors said, and he had this ominous feeling as he walked up the staircase. He told us all those things, and we interviewed him at length when he was in jail and before he went to jail, going over kind of the same ground time after time, hoping to elicit more details. And I think the incident stuck in his mind because I think that Secret Service raid was a real coming-of-age <laughs> moment for him. It yes. separated him. Yes, it it separated his childhood from his adulthood. Yeah. Um, also, these are not... These are not your normal interview subjects. I mean, as reporters with more than 20 years of experience between us, um, we know when, when you can trust somebody's memory on a fact and when you can't. These are guys whose memory is perhaps their greatest strength. I mean, to be a really world-class hacker, you've got to be able to remember strings and strings of arcane data, acronyms, numbers. One of the guys in the book, um, Paul Styra, could randomly dial um, zero to a hundred, you know, that would be zero, zero, one, zero, zero, two, as he'd be hacking out by hand, trying to guess different passwords, three strings of numbers, and he could do all of those digits without once repeating them. Well, without doing them in order, he might go zero, six, six, zero, one, nine, zero, two, eight. 
but and he'd, he'd remember which ones he dialed, right. even though he wasn't doing these it guys had. I mean, they they had photographic memories. They remembered everything. I mean, it was it was uncanny the kinds of things that we would get from them. So that makes the reporter's job in this case on this. Story, oh yeah, pretty that was, easy. That was great. How much cooperation or hostility did you get? I mean, you seem to have gotten very far into the the psyches of the masters of deception, and to some extent, you know, their rival gang, the uh, the uh, Le- Legion of Doom. Right. Yeah, Legion of Doom. The hardest um, part of the book was getting the kids to trust us and to open up to us. And that was really Josh's strength, his, his ability to do that. And I think it's because he thinks like a teenager. Well, mostly I would <laughs> take them out and get them really drunk. <laughs> <laughs> this is Point of View on WNUA 95.5. Charlie Myerson here talking to reporters Michelle Slatala and Joshua Quitner, husband and wife team. They've just published a new book, The Masters of Deception, The Gang That Ruled Cyberspace. This is a book about guys. There's, there's hardly a, a, a female character to be found here. There's a female lawyer. There are references to, to mothers of some of the, the key figures. Um, is there a message? Is there an underlying sociological pattern to be uh, discerned here? I mean, yeah. why, why aren't there any As any, soon as you get a girlfriend, women? you lose interest in computers entirely. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's the message. I mean, fiber optic, who was, you know, the, who, who's, was just picked by New York Magazine as being one of New York's hundred smartest New Yorkers, <laughs> who's legend across the world for his computer prowess. He's got a girlfriend now. You know, he doesn't spend all of his nights in front of the computer. He spends all of his nights in front of his girlfriend. But why? It's it, the picture one gets from your book, whether it's accurate or not, and I suspect it is, is that there aren't a lot of female hackers waiting to find boyfriends. It's well, simple, actually. These kids hung out together and were a gang in the late 1980s, the way an earlier generation of teenage boys hung out together and were gangs in the 1950s. In the 1950s, boys would congregate on a street corner and soup up their cars. In the 1980s, boys congregated in each other's bedrooms and souped up their computers and rode them into cyberspace. But it's also at, boys at this age do this sort of thing because, you know, they're like testosterone fueled. They've got an incredible amount of energy. They want to go out and conquer the world and they're, they're stuck at home. So what do they do? They, they either climb out their windows and pack together and, and go rampaging around the neighborhood, or they climb into their computers and do the same thing online. Or they climb into garbage dumps, which I think is a, is a lesson we want our corporate listeners to be aware of. One of the key, we'll tell our audience about it. It's called dumpster diving, and it's an activity that all hackers are really good at. What they do is they wait until late at night, and then they drive over to a corporate dumpster. They go behind the building of New York Telephone or, or a, a building of a computer company, and they jump into the garbage dumpster, and they start going through the trash. What they're looking for is computer printouts, information that might reveal how that corporation's computer system works, randomly typed strings of commands, um, anything that will give them a wedge to get inside. And they're often successful, or at least they're successful enough that over the course of time they can amass. Well, ninety-nine percent of the time they probably just find cartons of old Chinese food, yeah. but they're successful enough of the time to actually get in. Plus, the, it was a charge to do this. The masters of deception have all, I guess, all now paid their debts. Have they all done their time for the the yeah, crimes five, detailed in your book? Five of the New York City boys were uh, indicted. Four out of the five were sent to jail. The fifth one. Uh, the fifth one agreed to cooperate against the others and, and escaped a jail term. All of them pleaded guilty. Um, the most serious 
prison sentences handed out were a year to Mark Abeni, a.k.a. Fiber Optic, and John Lee, a.k.a. Corrupt. So they've, they've paid their debt to society now. Are they, are they still a menace to uh, no, I don't believe institutions? They are. Why not? Well, I believe that the guys that were caught um, grew up, and this was a very real, very serious rite of passage. And I think from what I've heard, and certainly the guys that I still know, they're not doing this anymore. They've, they're very technically adept, and they received a certain level of notoriety, and the job offers started to stream in. <laughs> I mean, it's not like being a jewel thief. It's not like being a, a crack salesman. If you're a really great drug dealer and you go to jail for, te- for a year, you're not going to have people from Macy's lining up to give you a job on the floor selling shirts in the men's department, even though you might have the exact same skills that would make you a very good shirt salesman. But computers are different. This is Point of View on WNUA 95.5. Our guests are Joshua Quitner and Michelle Slatala, authors of the book Masters of Deception, The Gang That Ruled Cyberspace. Joshua, you've been in the news uh, recently for for other reasons. There There was a story that surfaced briefly and then disappeared that you had registered the name McDonald's.com. McDonald's.com as an internet address. And what happened with that? Um, Well, briefly, I had uh, done a story for Wired Magazine about how companies were going out and registering domain names on the internet, which is the name that's to the right of the at sign in an email address. And companies were even going out and registering the names of their rivals as a sort of competitive measure. And I found that that McDonald's.com had not been taken. So I called McDonald's a number of times to see if anyone could explain why such a juicy name had not been registered. And I couldn't get a straight answer. And uh, so I decided to do it myself. And so for months, I was getting email uh, addressed to Ronald at (laughs) McDonald's.com. I had received over a thousand messages. Fully half of the messages urged me to use the name to uh, extol the virtues of vegetarianism. (laughs) And the other half said, soak McDonald's for every penny you can. You know, make them buy the name from you. Neither one of these uh, seemed like a good possibility to me. So what I did is I said, I offered McDonald's their name back in exchange for them wiring the school in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is a a difficult part of Brooklyn, um, to the internet on a very high-speed connection. I had gone to a school there, visited a school there about a year and a half ago that was doing some really marvelous work on the internet, but they were using really a really crummy connection, you know, 2400 baud, lousy computer. So I said, if you, if you line them up with a really high-speed connection, I'd be happy to give you your name back. Um, recently, we got word that McDonald's was going to foot half the bill, and a local internet provider known as NizerNet in New York is going to do the other part. So it looks like, looks like we took two information have-nots and made them haves. Our guests on this rebroadcast of an edition of Point of View from last year have been authors Joshua Quitner and Michelle Slatala, whose book, Masters of Deception, is just out in paperback this month, 1250 from Harper Perennial. I'm Charlie Meyerson. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Point of View, a weekly forum for insight and information of importance to the Chicago area. The views expressed are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of WNUA 95.5 or Pyramid Communications. If you have any comments or questions, send them to WNUA News, Suite 300, 444 North Michigan, Chicago 60611. Our email address is News at AOL.com. Point of View is an exclusive presentation of the news department of WNUA 95.5 Chicago.